thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and look at your word. We ask that you be with us and guide us. Help us to see what you would want us to see from all of this study and lead us in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Daniel chapter 3. Last week we talked about Daniel uh, giving the interpretation of the dream that the king couldn't remember. The king promoted him. And if you remember on the last sentence of, of chapter 2, Daniel got the king to promote Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to positions of authority within the province. So chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three square cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent together together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So then the princes and governors and captains and judges and treasurers and counselors and sheriffs and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together into the dedication of the image with Nebuchadnezzar. The king set up and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So we're going to stop there. We've got Nebuchadnezzar deciding that he's going to create an idol. And this is just a little tiny idol. It's only 90 feet by 9 feet. <laughs> just a little thing. Uh, and he sets it up in the, the plain of Dura, which is a plain that is southeast of Babylon. It's a very large place, and if you look it up, they'll talk about a big mound that they believe is a pedestal for some kind of big statue, so it kind of proves out that that's where the statue was set up. Uh, you think 90-foot idol, roughly about 10-story, about 9, 10-story tall building. This is not a little little thing. It probably had a huge pedestal base that it stood on uh, to make it even more stand out on this plane. And we look at this and he calls together, basically when you look at this, he calls together all the leaders of Babylon to, to this idol worship, which always brings the question, where is Daniel in all of this? Okay. And because everybody looks at this, they go, he calls all the people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are called, governors are called, all these people. And there's a couple of things that may be happening here because you, you've got to remember Daniel is number two man in the, in the entire nation. He may be an emissary going off to visit some foreign, foreign king or he may be dealing with province, uh, problems in some other part of the kingdom. He could be left at the gate to, to be hearing the, any court trials and, and decisions because the king and everybody else is there. Most likely he was away as an emissary. Might have even been supervising army during the battle. We don't know, but it is obvious that Daniel was not in Babylon. It's most likely that he may have been far away. He might have been in India or or somewhere else, you know, so that it is, it is possible. The one thing we know is that he most likely was not in Babylon, otherwise he would have been in the midst of this and he would have been, there would have been four of them thrown into the fire. Uh, so there's always a question thrown out and you know, most people believe that he was, he was sent off. Uh, because you look at this list, they, they called the princes, the governors, the captains of the military, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, uh, the sheriffs, you know, and then if in case we missed anybody, all the rulers. So this is a huge gathering of officials to worship the idol 
that Nebuchadnezzar is setting up. And this was not uncommon. The size of the statue is a little uncommon, but it was not uncommon for a king to call all of his leaders together and say, I want you to worship my God. And so this is not an uncommon event. Uh, they usually didn't make a 90-foot idol. But, uh, you know, think about this. This is a huge, this, this uh, idol is going to stand out in the middle of a plane. It's going to stand out from a long distance away. It doesn't tell us what it is, and it's kind of irrelevant as to what idol it is. Uh, it's just an idol. Maybe one of himself. Right? Could have been one of himself, but I don't think I don't really, I don't really think that it's himself because he says that he wanted him to worship his gods. So I don't think it was him. The Babylonians leaders did not really think of themselves as gods so much, but he is going to. He has a definite pride issue. We see that through this story, and the next story we're going to see his pride being broken. So, verse four. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whoso falls not down and worships shall the same hour be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore at that time when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the, the psaltery, and all kinds of music. All the people in the nations and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So we already have a very clear announcement. You do not worship this image. You are going to be burned to death. Alright? And you can picture this, you know, this long list of instruments. It's, they had a great big band there, basically, and said, when you hear the band play, bow down. And you've got to think about this as we see when, when the Jews do not bow down, they're going to stand out like a sore thumb. No matter where they are on that plane, standing up when everybody else is on their face, they're going to stand out. And we see that in verse 9. Wherefore, at the time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews, they spoke and said unto King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man shall hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and the dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whosoever falls not down and worships, he should be cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded you they serve not your gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. We saw this battle being set up even in the last chapter. Daniel, if you remember in uh, verse 47 in chapter 2, the king answered Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing you could reveal the secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over the wise man of Babylon. And wise man of Babylon are the Chaldeans. All right, so we've got a battle being set up here. The Jews are no more, no better liked in this period of time than they are in our day and in Hitler's day and all through time. They have not been liked just because they worship 
the one true God and have set themselves. So we see here in verse 8 that certain of the Chaldeans, now what they were doing looking around rather than having their heads bowed is another story altogether. But they probably had this anticipation that those three men would not bow. Okay, because Daniel's God has just been promoted the previous chapter. And we don't, again, we don't know how much time has passed on here. Obviously enough of them for them to know the character of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they most likely aren't going to bow down to this idol. These are the same men that they're going to have heard the story of that wouldn't eat the king's food, the food sacrificed to the idol, and, and ate the, the, the vegetable pulp, the, the, the beans and water. That story, I'm sure, has been heard amongst the leaders. And Daniel's been raised up, and they're mad at Daniel, and, and he's a Hebrew, and, they, and they're going to know these guys, and they, and they begin to know their character because you know that these guys now have watched them. Let's see if they bow down. Because if they had bowed down, the next thing, if they had bowed down to this idol, everything they stood for would have been, been looked at as wrong. And I'm going, yeah, these, these guys, they make a big deal of this, not eating the, the, the food sacrificed to the idol, but here they are bowing down to the idol. And if they didn't bow down, then they're going to get rid of their, their nemesis by having them cast into the flame, the furnace. So for them, this is a win-win. Now, they bow down. And we just accuse them, and they've lost, their, they've lost their testimony. They don't bow down. We win because they get killed in the fiery furnace. This, the Chaldeans think they have won a victory over these Jews. And you see their accusation. Oh, king, first they go, you know, oh, king, you know, have you made the decree that every, you made a decree that every man that heard the sound of all those instruments, we're not going to read again, should bow down. And it says, you know, then, then they, they repeat his message, you know, that whosoever doesn't do it is, you know, going to be burned. And then they go, and, they, and their answer is, there are certain Jews, you can almost hear the, the, the huh? The scorn. the scorn in there, you know, you know, there are certain Jews that, oh, by the way, King, you have put over us. <laughs> you know, you hear this, you've heard, you hear the scorn in their voice, they, you almost hear the attack against the king. You put these foreigners over us. We're Chaldeans. We're your wise men. You know, we're the we're the ones that are supposed to be raised up. And you put these uh, these foreign Jews over us. Bad enough, they're foreigners, but they're but they're also Jews. And you put them over us. And then they name them. They definitely knew who they were. And they says they have not regarded you. Okay, so first they're making the attack to the king. King, they 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 don't even follow your rules. And they don't serve your gods. Okay, so here's this big attack, and it says, nor do they worship the golden image. So, I mean, they're, they're really laying it on thick here. King, they don't, they don't respect you. They don't respect your god. And this image that you put up, they're not respecting. You can picture the king. This is, you've got to remember, we've talked about Nebuchadnezzar on that first week we talked about it. He is not a nice man. Okay, he is not a nice man in battle. He doesn't appear to be a nice man in the history books, even with people that come before him. He is cruel. And these guys are probably just licking their chops. You know, they, these guys are going to get what they deserve. We don't want them here, and we're, we're, gonna, we're going to get rid of them. And we see in verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. 
And the king spoke unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? If you now be ready, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hand? The king is angry with them. He's very furious that somebody would dare to disobey him. But you see a softening when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come in. He's obviously learned to appreciate their talents. They've done a good job. They're Daniel's friends, who's number two in the kingdom. And he has a softening of his heart a little bit. And he says, uh, well, is it true that you're not worshiping? I'll give, you, I'll give you a second chance. Maybe you didn't understand. Maybe you didn't understand what I said, you know. Maybe, maybe now that you're standing right here before me, maybe you didn't hear the music. You know, whatever it is, he's, he's given them this second chance. And he says, if you will fall down, and you look at this, he goes, in verse 14, you do not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image that I have set up. There's something about this image that's not necessarily his gods, because there's always this split. Okay, And you can remember, in the very beginning, they did not eat the food from the king's table, that food offered to the idols. They probably did not go to the services that all the other guys went to to learn how to worship the king's gods. They have set themselves different, and here he's recognizing this, and now it's like, okay, you're not worshiping my gods, and you're not going to bow down in front of my idol, in front of all the people when I have told you to. And he says, I'm going to give you this second chance, but I love this last sentence, and it says, who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Okay, he is saying basically, number one, I serve gods that are stronger than your gods. And in his mind, he did because he conquered the Jews. Okay, and you've got to have yourself put in this mindset. When you conquered a nation in their day, in your mind, your God was stronger than their God. Okay, so in his mind, he's already defeated their God as far as he's concerned. He's not looking at it the same way they are. We're in captivity because of our disobedience, and God let you take us into captivity. In his mind, his God is stronger than their God. You see also the arrogance that he has. You know, I'm so close to my God that I'm the one, you know, you, you can't even be delivered out of, your God can't even deliver you out of my hand because I'm so close to my God. This man is a very arrogant individual. And, I, you know, in verse 16, I love... I have told people, I love this answer. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer you in this manner. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. I really love this answer from these three young men. You know, no matter how old they are at this point, they're still young. Remember, they were teenagers when they were brought in, maybe 12, maybe 13 or so. They spent three years in training. They've had some time here that they have been in service. These, still, these young boys are probably still not even 20 years old. Mm -hmm. 
standing, a, looking into the face of a very angry king who's used to getting his way, who's a warrior, probably battle-scarred, knowing that he's perfectly willing and able to take their life. And it, I love their answer. We are not going to be careful. You know, we're not, we don't have to think about this, this statement that you've made. You know, uh, our God is able to deliver us, you know, king. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. How many of us as Christians need to get that much courage? It doesn't matter what's going to happen. My God can make a blessing of it. And even if he doesn't, I am not going to back down. I've seen people, matter of fact, I was talking to people in the prison here the other day. They go, well, you know, and they were talking specifically about telling the truth in a situation and having prison justice done on them by people going and, and beating them up, you know, if they told the truth about something. I'm going, you have to make your own call on this. I can only tell you that God says, stand for the truth. God is able to defend you, but even if he doesn't, you need to stand for him. I'm going, that's, but that's between you and God. You have to make that decision. Most of us don't face that kind of a decision on a day-to-day -day basis that if I follow God, I'm going to lose my job or, or be beat up or lose my life. It may be coming sooner than we think. We need to get into this mindset that I will serve God no matter what the results. And we've shared this. The, the apostles, when they were told not to share Christ in the public square, they kept going forward and sharing him and getting, them, getting punished. Could God have delivered them from the punishment? Yes, but God said, nope, you're going to go through this. And I love their answer each time. Thank God that we were worthy of suffering. As Christians, we have to develop this mindset that if we suffer for Christ, then it is he has deemed us worthy of suffering and that we will be a great testimony through that suffering. If we read through history and see how many Christians have been martyred, have been abused over the years so that they would lift the light of Christ up. Because when people see that silent suffering that says, I'm suffering for God, it makes an impact on people. People look at it and say, is there something about this person? Something about them. <laughs> and here we see these people, these, these young men saying, you know, our God can deliver us, but whether he does or doesn't, we're not bowing. They were fully ready and expecting to die. And this is something we have to be aware of. They were expecting to lose their life in this situation, but they were very careful to define these rules. Our God is stronger, and he can defeat you, Nebuchadnezzar, but we're not going to care whether he does or doesn't because he is our God. Verse 19. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spoke and commanded that they should heat the furnace one furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And you love this. You, you look at this. His vicious was changed. This is what I'm thinking. He saw these young men said, I, you know, these guys have been really good. And maybe, they, maybe they didn't understand. And it said, as soon as they said this to him, he was angry. You know, because you think about this. What have they just told him? King, we don't care what you command. You know, that's bad enough to sell to him. 
King, we don't care who you think your gods are. We're not going to honor them. King, we're not going to bow down to this image. And by the way, our God is able to deliver us if he wants to. You know, this is not something you say to the king, of the, the king who holds your life in the hand if you care about your life. And it shows where they were at with God. We are willing to give up our life. If that's what God wants, we're willing to give it up. This is a place that we need to be ready always to give our life for God, no matter what. And until we reach that place, we will not do great things for his kingdom because we'll always be backing down when we get to the place where the great things are being a challenge. It's easy to serve God when there's no problems. The question is, are we willing to serve him when life is on the line, when our death is in front of us, when it's hard, will we make the right decision when we are faced with do, do what is right or lose a job? Many Christians will back down and do it, you know, not follow what's right, even that they know what's right because they're afraid of losing a job, much less their life. And here they're ready to lose everything their life, their jobs, whatever, whatever happens. Because think about this. Even if God delivers them, their anticipation is now we don't even have jobs. We're slaves. You know, we're, you know, we're going to lose our cushy jobs in the office and become you know, slaves and servants. So we have a big thing. And, and the king says, get that furnace going seven times hotter than normal. That's a pretty good furnace. Verse 20, and he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men went and bound, these men went, were bound in their coats, their, their hose and their hats and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because of the king's commandment was, the, was urgent, the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire slew the men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the fiery furnace. Okay, he takes his strongest men. You know, so you can picture this. The, when they were being bound, the binding was part of the punishment, obviously. He said he wanted the strongest men. He wanted those knots tied tight. He was actually saying brutalize them before they even make it to the fire. Okay, because the fire should have been a quick, fairly quick death. I mean, it's seven times hot. It should have been pretty quick burning. So he's binding them. And it says here, I mean, they were bound in everything that they were wearing. Their outer garments, their, their, long, their long, uh, longer garments. Their, it even says their hats. Okay, their turbans. These guys were bound with everything they were, they were before the king with. And I can tell you that I'm, you know, it doesn't actually say it, but I'm sure it was not with gentleness that these strong men bound these guys. And then they took them to the fire, and as they were throwing them in, this shows you how hot the fire is. However close they got to be able to throw them in, the fire was so hot that they died. That's a hot fire. Uh, if you've ever been close to a fire, you know, you can know how hot it can get, but I've never been around a fire so hot that you would die by being that close to it. Maybe a blast furnace or something. You know, I've never been around one that hot, you know, something that melts metal. 
but he's talking about this fire has been stoked. It has been used, they've been using the bellows on it. It is a hot fire and these men die. These are strong men. These aren't, these aren't wimpy people. These are, these are strong warriors that die from this heat after they have bound these young men. And it says that they were cat, they fell down in the midst of the fire, the fiery furnace. So they weren't just kind of pushed in, they were literally, it says, thrown in. And they were probably thrown into about the middle of it. You know, he wanted to make sure that these guys weren't going to make it. And then in verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Nebuchadnezzar's thrown them in. He's, he's probably expecting to hear screams and, and, and crying and... and you know, all of this, and he looks in, and to his astonishment, he's not hearing any screams, he's not hearing them cry out, and he looks in, and he finds four people walking in the middle of a furnace that has just killed his three, three strong men. We, we kind of laugh about this, but you know, if you were Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be terrified by this. You have been saying, my God is strong, and they, they can't be delivered. These guys have already told you that their God could deliver them. They're walking around in the fire with a fourth person, which he knows has to be some form of their God that they're walking with. We would say that it was Jesus, a, pre, a, a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. You know, can you imagine that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with Jesus, just kind of talking in the, <laughs> talking in the furnace. You know, you're probably saying, well, you know, I really appreciate how strong you guys have in my belief, and yes, I'm going to deliver you because of your belief. I'm going to deliver you, and we're going to do great things, and we're going to show that I am stronger than anybody. That this king, you know, we don't know what they said, but you can picture that. You know, he's saying thank you for being so faithful. You know, I could picture that being the case. You know. They're probably bowing down before him, and, and you know, he's saying, thank you for being faithful, and, and they're walking around. You know, we, we had that little cartoon on, on, the, on the PowerPoint in before, you know, they're, they're roasting, roasting uh, marshmallows in the, in the furnace. You know, it's you know, little silly things, but you know, they were not being touched by this flame. I know you quite don't like uh, my translation here, but my last part here says, uh, looks like a son of the gods, little G. Could be. Was it common for their gods, little G, to, to have sons? Yes. Yes, if you look at the mythology in every religion and you look at the gods, the gods always had children. Okay. Always. Uh, you look at Zeus, who had all of his children in the, in the gods and then had demigods, half gods, you know, when he would, would dally with but the... They were, were beard. Almost like the oh, oh, father. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. This is common. Ra was the sun god of Egypt, was the main god, and every other god was his, was his descendants. Uh, I can't remember the Hindu god uh, of war, but that's their main god, and everyone is their descendants. Oh, yeah. Is this the god of 
a war in, in Greek and Greek and uh, Roman. Uh, but every one of these gods had children, and if you start studying mythology, you get down this long list of uh, different gods. So and all and, of them get respected. And they would be respected. Well, respected to a greater or lesser degree, depending on. You know, sometimes the, the, the sons and daughters of the god would fight each other and you wouldn't respect the one, you know, the one that was fighting them. I mean, it was a very strange world in the, in the polytheistic uh, world. Uh, so, yeah, it would be probably more truly defined he is a son of the, of, of the god uh, because he's not recognizing it uh, as the, the chief god because most of them never saw the, you know, worship the chief the, bi the bi biggest god. So, but you see his astonishment. Okay, these guys said their god could deliver me. I've conquered their god. They sh his god shouldn't be able to deliver them, and yet there's somebody walking in this fire with them. And he would have obviously said it is a god. You know, and it becomes obvious that it had to be a god. It's not, they didn't throw four men in there, and somebody just appearing has to be, in, their mi in his mind, a god. And so we have this astonishment. The, the people that his counselors are in that same astonishment, and they're looking in. And I love this, you know, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. Because <laughs> what would you think? The very first thing you would have thought is even if the fire did not burn them, that they would be coming right back out. And they're just kind of wandering around, you know, and this is what I'm saying. I pictured Jesus talking to them and saying, thank, you know, things like, thank you for being so faithful. We're going to send you back out and you're going to get to, you know, be their testimony and all of this, you know, and that's speculation, but I just picture this. They're kind of just wandering around. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most high God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth from the fire. Now he got as close to that fire as he dared because he wasn't going to lose his life. But you look at what he says. Come forth and come hither. I can almost picture this was not really a command from him at this point, I don't think. This is more because it's repeated twice like this. I picture this more of a... Uh, I'm begging you to come out here and uh, talk to me. You're, you're worshipers of the Most High God, and you can almost picture that he's ready to say, I need you to pray for me. <laughs> now, uh, because you can think that at this point, he kind of has this idea that his life may be forfeit. If, if they've got a God that can deliver them from his fire that killed his servants, and they already told him that their God could, you can, picture, can you picture how fearful he is at this moment? Yeah. This is not the proud king at this point in time that threw them into the fiery furnace to prove his strength. This is a man who at this point in time is terrified. He's thinking, probably thinking back to Daniel 2.47 where he told, told Daniel that he's following the God of all truth. Okay. In his mind, Daniel followed a God of wisdom. Okay, here he's finding a God of great power, not just of wisdom and knowledge, but he's seeing a God of power, and he's realizing this is the same God that Daniel has followed, that knew what his dreams were, knew, knows the future, which he would have assumed was just a God of wisdom, and now he's seeing a God of power. Mm -hmm. do, you see the, do you see this 
picture that we're seeing. Now, it's one thing to defy a God of wisdom, but it's another thing to go in and defy a God who can protect his people in the fiery furnace and keep them alive. When, when you have said that you've got power over this God, this is a man at this point, and I, it doesn't say that he's terrified, but I am absolutely sure that he is terrified at, the, at what he's seeing. This is a God that he has defied, which means that his, in his mind, his life is forfeit. He dared to go against a God, and he knows that if somebody went against his God, he would be expected to kill that person as he would just tried to do to them. He's expecting that his life is going to be forfeit because of this God that he has defied and these men walking around. And I think he's really terrified that the fourth man will come walking out with them. Okay, bad enough if these three walk out. But if that fourth one walks out, who is the one that's protected them in the fire, he knows that that fourth one walks out, his life is, he's toast. <laughs> Because he probably figures that guy has enough power to toast him without the fiery furnace. He didn't invite him to come out. Yeah, he didn't invite him to come out. Yeah, that's true. It's a, okay, you three, would you please maybe come on out here? Yeah, they're not, the fourth man in the fire was not invited to come out and see him. Uh, verse 27, and the princes, governors, captains, and counsel, king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power nor was a hair in their head singed, neither was their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Okay, we have this huge crowd seeing nothing different. They've just been cast into a fire. At the very least, they're figuring they should come out singed. Okay, smelling like, smelling like smoke. You know, at the very least, they should be. You know, the hairs on their on their body should be char. You know, should be. Be singed. They should smell like smoke. They should smell like burnt, burnt hair. They look at them. Their clothes haven't even been caught on fire. Their, their hair has not been singed. And I love that it's showing that all of these people are seeing this miracle. This is not a miracle just for the king. This is a miracle that every single leader in his kingdom is seeing. God does this quite often when he does great miracles he makes them so that everybody sees them when he took the children of Israel out of Egypt first he started with the ten plagues to destroy their gods and show that he was stronger than their gods and destroyed the economy of Egypt and took and tore them apart and everybody in the world learned of that because Egypt was the major empire at the time then he takes them through the Red Sea not by ships, not by walking them across, but by splitting the sea and having them walk across and then destroying the Egyptian army. God's miracle was not just for the Jews to see, it was for the entire area to see and grab hold of and saying, this God that they are following is powerful. And we see, even when you get into the book of Judges and, and and Joshua, that the people are still afraid of them because of what God has done in the past. Here God is saying, I want all your people, Nebuchadnezzar, to see my power. You've been worshiping these other gods and you thought you were something, something powerful. I want you to know, and I want all your people to know, this isn't something you're going to sweep under the rug. 
and say that these guys managed to get get away from this execution, it's going to be everybody will know, including those Chaldeans who didn't like them in the first place, who went after them and, and made a big deal of them. I'm going to show you, show them what they're up against. How many times do we stand up for God? And when we stand up for God, he often will bless us, even in places where it looks like there is no way to be blessed. When we just stand up and say, God, I'm going to honor you, and we watch him promote. Mm -hmm. I've read many stories of missionaries that are going into foreign lands where they stand up for God, they stand up against, against the governments, and they get promoted because God delivers them. You look at somebody like St. Patrick in Ireland who went against the Druid religion. And I don't know how much of you know about that, about him, but he brought God against everything that the Druid king and, and leaders and priests did, and God promoted him because they couldn't kill him. He was another person that the enemy tried to kill. They tried to poison him. They tried to, they tried to burn him. They tried all kinds of things, just like they did to John, John the Revelator. You know, they tried to they tried to poison him, they tried to boil him in oil, put him in an insane asylum with other criminally insane and they, that never touched him. St. Patrick was the same time. Many missionaries have gone through this. Many missionaries have lost their life for God. Others have had their life delivered and raised up so people would look and say, you serve a powerful God. Sometimes they would die in a, in a very strong way, which then would make people realize this person followed a strong God that they really believed in. And that touched. It really depends on the people that needed to be touched. Do they need to be touched by seeing a God that's so strong that he could deliver? Or does he need to, do they need to see somebody that died in a very manly way that doesn't, didn't lose their faith by standing for God? If you read Fox's Book of Martyr, there's many stories in there where the people, the testimony that was brought up brought many people to Christ because they died with great dignity and honor. Uh, I love the one, uh, one particular story. A father and son were in prison and they were going to burn them at the stake and the father was starting to lose his, lose his confidence and his faith and, so, and the son says, the, God will take us and he goes, tell you what, when we get there, when we see God, you can raise your, whoever goes first will see God and raise their hands and praise God. The son was the one that went first with his faith and in the middle of it, he raised his hands and started praising God with song. Strengthened his father, but you've got to imagine the impact on everybody watching that death, how much it impacted. And somebody had to know enough to be able to get the rest, you know, the story from what went in and went forward. But these stories abound all over the place, all through scriptures they abound. That God, when he delivers his people, gets glorified because he's the one that gets the glory. And even in their death, he gets glorified because they die with the dignity and the praise of him. Love the story of Stephen when he's being stoned and he says, I see the son standing at the right hand of the father waiting for, for me. Can you imagine that? All it did for most of the crowd was make them angrier, but there were still the Christians around about, those who were going to be touched saying, there's something different about this person. Most people, when they're stand, you know, being stoned, are, are screaming in agony, begging for mercy, and he is bowed down, praising his God because he sees him ready to accept him. The way we look at things as Christians should be different. 
The way we look at death should be totally different. And I've shared with you over and over, I, when I was a teenager, I told people the worst they could do to me is almost kill me. You know, because death sent you home. You know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The worst anybody, anything anybody can do to us is, is hurt us. Because then we have to suffer. But even then, we, we need to be like the apostles and saying, thank God that he found me worthy of suffering. All of it comes down to what is our attitude toward the things God lets happen to us. If we can't be thankful for it, he'll probably let us go home and let us be killed by whatever it is they do to us. If we can be thankful, maybe we have to suffer often. And you listen to Paul and saying he's been shipwrecked three times, he's been stoned a number of times, you know, chased out of town if nothing else. And, and when you're chased out of town, it is not a kindly thing to be chased out of town. They're usually beating you, beating you and hitting you and throwing things at you. And, you know, you're not just being chased out of town, you know, you are being beat out of town. And so all these things happen to Paul and he says, thank you, God. You know, in his case, he thought it was just part of his suffering for what he had done to Christians in the first place. And, but it was a way to look and show people, oh, my God is faithful. My God is faithful. We see these people, these Christians that are dying around the world. Uh, I remember, I guess it was a year ago when the Egyptian Muslims killed those 20 or 30 Coptic uh, Christians on the beach and all they did was bow down and they were praying as they were being killed because of the dignity they had and the honor that they were not gonna give up God. Where will we be when we are challenged? What will our attitude be? Again, it's one of those things we need to make our decision before we're facing it. Because if you haven't made your decision before, you're going to deny God. It's just not even a question in that. We will most likely deny God if we haven't made a decision to honor him no matter what. And think back in your life. When, when you have been in a tight spot, what has been your decision? You're going to know more about what you're going to do. I lost a job one time because I would not do the wrong thing that the boss wanted me to do. I also got the same situation with another boss, and he goes, okay, well, it's not, you know, and he didn't fire me. You know, I left that job shortly thereafter because he was willing to do it one time. He'd be willing to do it again, and I didn't want to keep having to say no. But where are we when we come to these situations? Have we made our decision that we are going to honor God no matter what? Ultimately, it's we won't know until we get there. You will never know what we will do until we are faced by the situation and we have to face it. And at that point, God will give us the grace, if we're willing to accept it, to go through whatever it is he's asking us to do. But I have also known that I've read enough stories, enough testimonies, that the people who have given their life for God have already been making that commitment even before it came that they've already decided they, are, they would willingly lose their life for God and the opportunity came within usually weeks if not months from that decision when they're talking to people, I'm willing to give my life for God if that's what he wants. And we need to be ready for that. We need to make that decision. These men made that decision and they were rewarded by coming out of the fire with no sign of smoke, no sign of fire. And that's an amazing thing. You know, that is amazing. Verse 28, Then Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him 
and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their god. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, language, and which speak anything amidst against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Uh, again. again. Well, a further promotion, yes. Uh, we don't know how they were put into some position, low level probably, and now they're being moved to middle or upper. But we see here that Nebuchadnezzar praises their God now for a second time. He's already done it with Daniel in the previous chapter. Now he's saying, okay, this God is a little stronger than I was even thinking back in Daniel's day. You know, Daniel was a God of wisdom. He showed him understanding. He understood the future. Now we've got a God that is powerful enough that the gods that I serve wouldn't, couldn't conquer. This is a man that has a little bit of terror in his life right now, and you can see a change in his heart starting. And we're going to see a lot of this change coming, coming in. Now, we're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar actually turns to God. And then we're going to see the punishment when he gets proud again after he's turned to God. But we're going to see he turns to God, and it is through the influence of Daniel primarily, but also... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are changing his heart. And I, you know, I, I love this. You know, Blessed be the God, your God. He has delivered you because you trusted him. And then I love this. And have changed the king's word. Okay? He's like, okay, I wasn't going to change my mind. I wasn't going to change. I mean, nothing was going to happen. But your God has made me change. He's definitely afraid of him. Yeah, he's definitely afraid of them. There's no way he's going to say that they're lost their position at this point because uh, you know this is a God who delivered, a God because look at his boast. Who is a God that can take you from me? Okay. Why was he saying that? Because he was so close, you know, he figured he was so close to his God who had delivered them already to him that he was able to defeat their God again. And to have them walk out of this fiery furnace is a big change in his mind. Okay? And he's telling people that they are now going to worship this God. Now, this is the second time that he's promoted God. I think this one's a little more real to him at this point. Because in Daniel's case, it was a reward. You know, there was no terror in Daniel's case. This is terrifying to him. He is not, he does not know how he's going to handle this, this powerful of a God. This is making him think twice about the gods he's worshiping. It's making him think twice about the God that he had just conquered, supposedly. Because he was actually terrified, because he knew the history of the Jewish people and how their God had fought for them many times over the 800 years since they had been in that land. Many times that God had conquered and, and made them win. He's thinking back when Assyria surrounded the city and God slew 170,000 army around the city. He was not totally unfamiliar with the God of these people. And he thought that he had 
that he had followed a God who was going to be stronger theirs when he took them captive. Now he's having second thoughts. He's going back to all, these, all this history he's heard, all these stories that he's heard that he thought were maybe missed, especially after he conquered them. And now he's saying, uh, maybe they weren't. Maybe they weren't. I mean, I, he's, he is a man in a very confused state at this moment. Do I continue following my gods, which I thought were so strong, or do I follow after this god who has just defeated me and my gods? We don't usually think of this, but this was a defeat. This is a defeat for Nebuchadnezzar's gods. They weren't strong enough to kill these young men in the fiery furnace. Their god was strong enough to deliver them from his gods. In his capital town, in the middle of his empire, with him their chief worshiper, and, their, and his god couldn't defeat these young men. This is a place where he is being shook up, which is why we're going to see in the next chapter that he's ready to turn to this other god because of this victory and defeat of his god. And we don't really fully understand what it means to these people when they get a defeat that directly is related to their god because their god is powerful. It would be like us as a Christian to all of a sudden wake up one day and God's been defeated and there's a whole new rule in this, in this world. Not going to happen, but imagine if it did, it would shake us to the core that, that everything overnight had totally changed and our God wasn't, wasn't God anymore. Okay, this is where Nebuchadnezzar's at. His God has just been defeated. He's the chief worshiper of that God. In their capital city, in the middle of where their God rules, and he's been defeated. This is a big issue for him. It doesn't tell us what they did to this image, but I have a feeling that it disappeared pretty quick. Uh, I have a feeling that it disappeared pretty quick and was melted back down. The furnace. Yeah, it, it probably went back into the furnace where it came out of in the first place. Uh, again, that's speculation, but, you know, and then he goes, you know, he goes, uh, you've changed the king's mind, you've yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. So he's saying, this god is special. And then he goes into this last decree, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language that speak anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces. Okay. He's not telling them they have to worship this God, but he's very clearly saying, you're not going to say anything negative about this God, which is, if you are a smart, intelligent person in King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom at this point in time, you are switching gods so that you don't say anything against this God because you're not going to go bow down to your God and have somebody you know, somehow accidentally say something against this God. So you can guarantee that the people who saw the writing on the wall switched religions. Even though he didn't say you had to, he's saying you're not going to speak anything about this God. So that would include saying that your God is greater. Okay, so this brought a great proselytization into the people. The God has been changed for most people. Not everybody. They're still going to be the handful that are just going to worship their God in spite but you can picture that most people say, okay, the king is setting this God up. We better, 
know, not only not only do we want to stay in the graces of that God who delivered these people, but we want to stay in the graces of the King. So we're we're going to make it at least look like we're worshiping this God. This is what happened in the Roman Empire when Constantine in the fourth century said Christianity is the approved religion. It didn't say it was the only religion. It didn't say it was the state religion. And that's when everybody went into their little pantheon of gods and changed out Zeus and, and Athena and, and Ares and all these other people and put in the different apostles. And all they did was change, prayed to the apostles and not to God, but they just changed things to the new religion out there. And they just made them all into these little gods. This happens all through time. When a country's conquered, they switch, they switch, switch gods. We see this in the, the, the southeastern part of Europe where, they, where the Muslim Ottoman Empire swept through them and then the Crusaders would push back against them. They would be Muslims for a couple years, then they would be Christians for a couple years, then they'd be Muslims for a couple years, and then be Christians for a couple of years. And it got to the point where they really didn't change what they believed, they just changed who they said they were. And they ended up with a very strange mix between the two religions that is still there today in that area, where when they say they're Christians, they're still tinged with all the Muslim traditions and everything. And if they say they're Muslims, they're twin tinged with a lot of the, the quote-unquote Christian uh, things because of they just went with whoever was ruling over them at the period of time. So we see that that's what's happening here for the population. Nebuchadnezzar now is kind of vacillating, and we're going to see in the next chapter that he makes a commitment to God that is going to fail. And then he comes back to God. And then we see the reward for having been obedient. Now, the reward isn't always promotion. We don't want to get that in people's minds. The reward for being obedient to God is not always promotion. Sometimes it is to lose your job. In this case, he promotes them. Now, whatever it was they were doing, they are the next step up or higher because of the honor that he's giving them. And so we see there's so much in this story, the obedience to God, the, the deciding to obey God, and the, and the blessings that come from obeying God. We've seen the very first story, they, were, they had abstinence against anything that was against God. The second one, trusting God to give out the, to give out the knowledge, and this one is the trusting God to, to deliver. And Nebuchadnezzar is watching all of this, seeing a God that is different from his God and moving forward. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and to worship you. Lord, help us to prepare our hearts for times when it is trouble, that there will be trouble for serving you. Get us ready for those days. You said that they hated you, they will hate us. We've seen over the years Christians being martyred for their, for their beliefs and being marginalized. Help us to be ready for all that in your son's name. Amen.